0: The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public, and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, today is May 16, 2018, and on behalf of the Director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Colonel Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to this month's Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. As always, the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, we would like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here at the AHEC. The book for tonight's lecture is on sale in the gift shop and behind the lecture hall. You can see Jim back there with his stack of books. Uh, All the proceeds from the book sales do go to support our foundation uh, and the hard work that they do. We also have a book signing after the lecture. So tonight, it is my great honor to introduce our speaker. Mr. Patrick O'Donnell O'Donnell is the author of 11 critically acclaimed books that cover soldiers' stories from the American Revolution to the Global War on Terror. Mr. O'Donnell provided expert advice on the award-winning miniseries Band of Brothers and multiple military video games. He works closely with the federal government using his expertise in historical weapons and tactics to assist in research and development. Just this month, he has published the much anticipated book entitled, The Unknowns, chronicling the individual heroes who Pershing assigned as the body bearers during the ceremony to lay the unknown soldier to rest after World War I. Of course, you can purchase that book as well tonight. Uh, It is fresh off the presses. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you all will do me the favor of helping me welcome Mr. Patrick O'Donnell.
2: Thanks, Carl. It's an honor to be here, and it's sort of a full circle moment. I've spent a lot of time in the uh, desks and areas that you're sitting in right now, sort of researching the stories of our past. All of the books I've written, I've written 11 books, and every one of the books that I've written has found me in one way or another. And that is certainly the case with Washington's Immortals. About In 2010, um, I was in Brooklyn, New York, and I was in the Battle of Fallujah as a um, combat historian. And it was a house-to-house engagement. I was with a Marine rifle platoon. Um, barely survived. I wrote a book called We Were One, which is on the Commandant's reading list about that experience. But the greatest thing about the experience was the people that I met and the the brotherhood and the bonds that I formed, including the commanding officer of 3-1, Colonel Willie Buell, who was in New York at the time. And he said to me, Pat, do you want to go to the Met? I said, no, sir. How about we go do a battlefield tour of Brooklyn? And that's exactly what we did. We met at Greenwood Cemetery, and this is one of the great cemeteries in the United States. The who's who of New York City is buried there, but it's also the start of the Battle of Brooklyn where the American Army had the high ground at Greenwood Cemetery. The British attacked several times and later flanked that British, the, the American Army and we walked in and around the hills of Greenwood Cemetery and then down the alleys of Brooklyn and we found the focal point of the Battle of Brooklyn and arguably one of the great inflection points of the American Revolution, an American thermopylae that many had not known about until I wrote Washington's Immortals. It's here at the Stone House in Brooklyn that General Cornwallis occupied a position that prevented most of the American army that had been on the high ground at Greenwood Cemetery and Prospect Park from retreating into their fortified positions at Brooklyn Heights. The Marylanders, under Mordecai Gist, later commanded, also commanded by Lord Sterling, commanded several hundred Marylanders to charge the House and dislodge the position to allow the army to escape. This sets up a series of epic bayonet charges. And I was astounded by this American Thermopylae and how not much had been really written about it. And we walked in and around the alleys of Brooklyn. We found an old VFW post, walked through there and outside there was a sign that said, here lie 256 continental soldiers, Maryland heroes. I was struck by the fact that somewhere in and around that area. Many of these men that had sacrificed themselves are buried. And I was astounded by the fact that this should be hallowed ground. We should know where they're buried. And I was also struck by who those men were in the sign. There were about eight or nine, AB 15, men that escaped. 256 were either captured or killed. And one of those men was Mordecai Gist. And as I started to deep, go deeper into the sign and who those men were, the story begins on a wintry day in 1774, where Mordecai Gist formed the first Baltimore independent company. They were men of honor, family, and fortune. Gist was one of the richest merchants in Baltimore. He was willing to commit treason for what he believed in, liberty. He was also willing to sacrifice his entire fortune in his shipping business for a cause and a nation that had yet to be formed. It's 1774. The revolution is on the very precipice. General Gage and the British are massively trying to disarm America. Especially uh, powder supplies, black powder is really critical. And the powder supplies are being raided and try to be seized by the British. And Gist and his men form a pact that they will defend any of their sister colonies in March within 48 hours to defend them. They are some of the the wealthiest men in Baltimore. Um, Lawyers, uh, tradesmen, they begin to train, they, they have, they, they, they outfit themselves with the best weapons that money can buy in uniforms, and they train. They had a, a trained drill master by the name of Carey who had um, was part of the uh, the Honorable Artillery Regiment which is in Massachusetts, and he started to train the men. It caught the attention of the city of Baltimore. These men were Elegantly dressed, they were. They were armed. They were. Sh- they were. They were learning how to march in formation. And for me, I, I spent years researching this, this story. I, I went through thousands upon thousands of documents, most of which have never been published, pension files, etc. But there was one document that really struck me. About 16 months before the Battle of Brooklyn, an anonymous letter came to the men of Honor, Family, and Fortune that said that they would fight an American Thermopylae and fight, they would, they would hold off over 20,000 troops. It was foreshadowing of exactly what would happen in Britain, in, in the Battle of Brooklyn. And it was signed um, ominously by Agamemnon. But these men kind of saw, saw their future in some way through that letter. They began to train, and this, this company of independent men really believed in what they were doing. They believed in liberty. They, were, they believed in their, their sacrificing their fortunes. But they were also, in many cases, a very tight brotherhood. Many of them had family ties to one another. They were best friends. Gist was very close with Samuel Smith, who would later become one of the great regimental commanders of the war. Um, There's another gentleman by the name of Jack Stewart, who I'll bring into the fold a little bit later. Uh, Jack's motto in life was, you only live once. He's a very headstrong kind of guy, over six feet tall, but was in some of the great actions of the American Revolution. The men began to train and prepare themselves for battle. The small company of men, Baltimore Independent Company, then merges into something called Smallwood's Battalion. The state of Maryland forms a defense force. And Colonel Smallwood, who had, who had fought in the French and Indian War, is in overall command. And the, the major, the first major, is Mordecai Gist. And many of the leadership positions from the independent cadets Fill the regiments' ranks, and these are the core that will later form some of the greatest battle regiments of the American Revolution, the Maryland Line. These men continue to train. Um, there's a threat to Baltimore City by Lord Dunmore, who's the governor of Virginia at the time. He brings up several ships. He threatens to burn Baltimore to the ground, and. The men are used um, strategically to fend off Dunmore, at least give the the impression of large numbers. The men line up in formation as Dunmore's uh, ships sail by, giving the impression of thousands of troops. They then melt away and then line up slightly differently, but it's the same men, to give the impression that there are thousands of Marylanders that are defending Baltimore City. The ruse works. Lord Dunmore doesn't attack, and that's just a little bit of the early uh, things that occur in 1775 for the Marylanders. We fast forward to the siege of Boston, evacuation of Boston, and eventually the British come back with one of the largest naval armadas in history at the time. It's the largest invasion in North America. Half their fleet is assembled, and a large portion of their army, along with Hessian volunteers, first come and attack Staten Island, and then they begin to prepare to attack New York City. And this is where the Marylanders real, uh, their first combat is, occurs. They, they march and sail up towards, up towards New York, and they prepare And it's August 26, 27, when the British, they land a few days earlier at Long Island. They then then start to march. And in the Battle of Long Island, it's quite quite an interesting maneuver. The um, Lord Howe and Cornwallis um, have a, a giant flanking maneuver. There are several passes. One pass, the Jamaica Pass, is unguarded. And that's exactly where the British are heading with the bulk of their army. Meanwhile, General Grant, as well as some Hessian forces, are sort of a, the anvil, as the hammer is going around in this flanking maneuver. And as we, I mentioned earlier, Greenwood Cemetery. The Marylanders are in the Stone House as their headquarters. They march in the middle of the night. Mordecai gets assembles his men, and they march as quickly as they can to Greenwood Cemetery and they form a line of battle and they withstand multiple British assaults and cannonades from British ships that are in the, um, in the harbor as well as some artillery and then they come to the realization that they're being flanked. And they are, they are being uh, potentially surrounded. They have to fight their way back towards the stone house and it's here that there's this epic Thermopylae, where Lord Sterling, who's a an American, that has a, a title which many is it's a fake title. Parliament doesn't recognize it. Organizes gifts in his companies, and they charge the house multiple times with fixed bayonets. The Marylanders are some of the one of the only units that actually has bayonets in Long Island in the American Army. <coughs> they attack the house, Cornwallis fires everything that he can, uh, canister, grape, musket fire, it's withering. Cornwallis' defenses are almost unhinged, but it also creates this gap in the lines, and a large portion of the American Army that had been fighting in Greenwood Cemetery in the heights of Prospect Park, etc., are able to escape in this sacrificial suicide play, in many cases. Um, They escape, and Gist is lucky. He's one of the few that actually is able to escape through the swamps and marshes, which surround this mill pond behind the stone house. And this sets up one of the greatest evacuations in military history. The next day, I mean, how is it a point right now where he's able to potentially crush the entire army. But the the time that Gist and his men, as one historian says, is an hour more precious in our history than any other. It allows the American army to escape. It also ties up the wings of the British army. Doesn't allow them to unite for a crushing blow on the defenses of Brooklyn Heights. How? It's getting dark, can't, I mean, even the most experienced army in the world in the 18th century, they don't want to conduct a night maneuver. So they decide to to camp and begin to entrench. The next day, they entrench and they create siege lines around the heights of Brooklyn. There's a massive nor'easter that prevents both armies from really conducting uh, heavy fighting, but it's at this point that General Washington has a decision to make. Does he make a stand, or does he evacuate? And this is where John Glover and the Marblehead Mariners assemble all the boats that they can in Manhattan. And they, they, they decide, under the cover of darkness, to evacuate the Army. And it's an amazing story. I mean. hand of god potentially a fog sets in and perfectly screens the movement of the army under the very noses of the british the last to leave are the marylanders they're the rear guard and they um they're in their entrenchments gist and samuel smith one of the last men to leave is samuel smith who runs into washington and they don't even realize that they're supposed to be going to the boats to glover's boats washington says you know Get over there as quickly as possible. They they mount the boats, and it, it just as the you know light comes in, dawn comes in. The British horse they actually see over the bluffs as they're evacuating the last men uh, from Brooklyn. And it's the, one of the greatest American, uh, one of the greatest escapes in, in military history. There's about a two week pause, and it's the Marylanders again. Washington realizes that this is a reliable force. These men become, in some cases, Washington's shock troops or his elite unit or guard to prevent total collapse. British land um, near Murray Hill about two weeks later, and the army collapses. Uh, As soon as the British land, uh, most of the units collapse. It's an um, amazing situation for Washington himself, who can't believe that his men, that he believes in, that he strongly uh, feels that can, should be holding, um, are melting away. And he's catatonic, literally, as the British soldiers are only yards hundreds of yards away. And somebody actually has to take the bridle of his horse and pull it to get him out of, of harm's way. He was willing to die for the cause right there. But the army is able to make... Um, a retreat, thanks to the Marylanders again. And here, um, in uh, in Central Park, uh, the the Marylanders uh, have some high ground. There's a pass there, McGowan Pass, and they hold that and allow Washington's troops make their way to Harlem Heights. The Marylanders fight there. They fight in a series of engagements. There's um, Harlem Heights, uh, but you know a critical piece of the fighting in and around New York as they, they make their way to the northern part of the island. One of the last bastions of defense is a place called Fort Washington. And if you know where the George Washington Bridge is, this was the site of a massive um, 18th century fort, American 18th century fort known as Fort Washington, which had a series of redoubts, and entrenchments, and there were nearly 3,000 Americans inside the fort. Washington felt that it couldn't, it wouldn't fall. He took General Greene's advice and continued to hold it. Um, But about a week before the actual assault on the fort, the adjutant, or the second-in-command of the fort, flees. He's a traitor. He reveals the plans of the fort along with the order of battle to the British. A week later, Colonel uh, Johan Rahl, who's the legendary leader at Trenton, leads an assault and pierces parts of uh, Fort Washington. Inside the fort were, were hundreds of Marylanders, um, including a guy by the name of Lawrence Everhart. Um, Everhart's probably the luckiest man of the Revolution, though. He's able to find a rowboat and escape Fort Washington as it's being assaulted. They row across the Hudson River, they make their way to the other side, and Everhart in, you know walks up to a mansion, and on the porch of the mansion he sees General Washington. Washington's immortals is, is unique in the sense that. A lot of the material in the book is from is the voices of the men, and the enlisted men in particular, or junior officers. And many of the sources were pension files or diaries. And in this case, Lawrence Everhart's pension file was rich in material. He records seeing General Washington with his spyglass, looking in at Fort Washington and seeing the carnage. You know, Johann Rahl pierces the defenses, They take many of the prisoners, Americans' prisoners, and they run them through a gauntlet on either side. And they kick and punch the Americans. They steal their belongings. They ban at them, in many cases, and murder them. And and Everhart witnesses Washington as he stares at the fort falling. And he says he sees tears in Washington's eyes. That's kind of the, the, the different side of the revolution that I bring out in Washington's Immortals. It's, the, it's not the, the fading oil paintings. It's not just the great men. It's the young, enlisted men, along with many of the feelings and emotions that the leaders had um, in this epic uh, battle and the, the rest of the Revolution. The Marylanders, then, what, what's left of it, of what's left of, of Smallwood's battalion, um, is part of the rear guard elite force that allows Washington's army to escape from New York into what they perceive as the safety of New Jersey and ultimately Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has many um, patriots, their farms are, are rich, that they can supply the, the American army, and they desperately want to get to the Delaware River as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, the British are pursuing in the rear guard Is the Marylanders once again as the British pursue? And they're just reduced um, very, very severely from the, you know, a thousand men to now, in many cases, about 300 or so uh, Marylanders. And they're in rags. I mean, many of them are barefoot. Their clothing is, is torn up, if they even have it. And, you know, Charles Wilson Peel is his, his brother is a, an ensign in the Maryland line. And one of the, the most vivid accounts I have in this book is how he remembers the, the crossing of the Delaware. And there's massive bonfires. The army is in such horrendous shape. The men are, their clothing is, is rags, as I mentioned. And they're crossing the Delaware in, in slow waves. And out comes a figure that's got you know sores all over his face. He has no shoes, no clothing. And it's not until he's only a few feet away that he realizes it's his brother James. That's how um, you know, bad the, the condition that, that these men were in. This is a time that you know tried men's souls. This is where America was in full retreat. The political climate in the country was of defeat. Um, there was not much hope. And the Army's enlistments were, 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 were up in January, uh, December 1st and then later at the end of the month. And Washington knew that in order to, to somehow salvage the Revolution, he had to mount a counterattack. And this is where they set up the Battle of Trenton. And once again, John Glover and the Marblehead Men are consulted and they say, don't worry about it, we can, ta- we can take care of it, we can bring the Army from the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware um, over across to New Jersey to Trenton, and um, you know, their, their password at the time is victory or death, that's how, that's how dire the situation is. And Washington gambles everything on a counterattack at the post in Trenton that's being held by Johann Rahl, the colonel, the Hessian colonel that had taken Fort Washington and was later involved with the Marylanders at White Plains. Um, it's not the story that you read in children's books where everybody's drunk and they're, they're partying during Christmas time. Johann Rahl was a professional soldier and his men were well-trained and disciplined. They were being constantly harassed and raided uh, Almost nightly and daily, by militia forces in the area, and that's they found themselves on um, you know that Christmas Day. The uh, they were constantly on high alert. They were sleeping in their um, you know with their uniforms and their muskets on the ready. And there's a you know a storm that sets in that screens parts of the movement. The the army gets across the Marylanders, the small group of Marylanders including Gist and Jack Stewart are there and they um, they attack uh, Trenton and it's a decisive American victory I mean they they capture hundreds of Hessian soldiers stacks of arms cannon and the the war is suddenly turning towards the American side but what happens there is um, John Cadwallader, who has a militia unit from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Associators, is supposed to also attack across the Delaware. But the, the, the Delaware is so filled with ice that they're not able to cross. The following day or so, they cross, and now Washington has a dilemma on his hands. A large part of his army is on the wrong side of the river. What does he do? Does he order them back? Washington decides to reinforce John Cadwallader and Trenton. And they, instead of, um, instead of trying to defend the town itself, they fall back to the eastern portion of, of Trenton, where there's a river known as the Asimpeg. And Washington digs in his army there. And it's Mordecai Gis' nemesis that's now, once again, kind of leading the British Army, General Cornwallis, for the counterattack. They make their way through Trenton. And Washington has his army arrayed along the Assam Peak. And there's a bridge, a stone bridge that was built a few years before the war. It's the major crossing point. Cornwallis takes his best units, the light infantry in most cases, to assault the bridge. They, they, they try to take the bridge several times with their best units. It's a bloody stand. The Marylanders are, are nearby. Um, Multiple bayonet attacks, multiple failures, and what you see is quite remarkable in terms of leadership. The commander in chief is right there. His horse is literally touching the side of the stone bridge. That's how close he is. They hold and Washington decides to... He's got another dilemma. Does he try to recross the river? Very tricky thing. Does he hold in place? like he has the same decision at Long, at Long Island? Or does he tr- does something new and novel? He attacks Princeton. And that's, that's what happens. The British think that they've got the American army. The legend says, oh, we'll bag the old fox in the morning. Meanwhile, there's fake campfires. And Washington is marching in the night towards Princeton. And doesn't necessarily go the, the way that they want it to initially. And Washington, once again, is a deciding factor on the battlefield itself, his leadership. He inspires his men, and they're able to, to overcome the British that are there in Princeton. That's just the northern part of this story, a little bit of it in two years. This, this book, Washington's Immortals, spans multiple years in places like Stony Point, up north, but also the bulk of the Marylanders' effort is in the southern campaign. And this is where the war is really won. They are the, they are the spine, the backbone of General Greene's army. It's the Maryland Regiment and the Delaware Blues who fight side by side with them throughout the whole war. And Washington, after the British decide to shift their strategy, they, they don't see much happening up north in New York. They don't have the numbers. The war has now become a global war. The French are involved. British forces have to be bled off from North America to, to defend their possessions in the, the Caribbean or India. So they decided to devise a new strategy to go south. They know that there are a lot of loyalists in the in the colonies and they wanna they, they want to conquer the South. Washington decides to send his best regiments, the Marylanders and the Delaware Blues, to to fortify the Southern Army, which is now under General Gates' command, and it's it's here, um, Gates assembles his massive army, and he's going to take basically the war to Cornwallis, who had now, who had recently taken Charleston, and had won several other engagements. The war was going quite well for the British Army, and it's it's at a place called Camden that the two armies meet in the middle of the night, and it's a, a decisive, decisive, British victory it's a disaster for um, for, for the revolution um, the Marylanders find themselves in a similar position that they had in um, uh, up in up in Brooklyn they have to fight their way through marshes and in and, and mill ponds to or not mill ponds but marshes to escape the British Army which are hot on their tail I mean at Camden they gates arrayed his forces incorrectly he put his his weakest units, the militia, against the British Army, some of the British Army's best units, and it collapsed the line. The men were fighting and running for their lives. The Army, the Southern Army, the Grand Army as it was called, literally was disintegrating before their eyes. The war seemed lost. It's 1780. It's a dire situation, much, much like um, you know, 1776, the winter of 1776. And it's the Marylanders, and Gist, and Jack Stewart, and some of these other hardened men that are keeping everybody together. It's the Marylanders. They form around the Marylanders, the militia, et cetera, and there's a series of events that take place. The Battle of Kings Mountain, where the militia actually destroy um, Loyalist forces under a guy by the name of Ferguson. And then, the really the, the epic battle, though, in many cases, at least for the Marylanders, is at a place called Cowpens in South Carolina, and this is near modern-day Spartanburg. Cowpens is exactly what it sounds like. It's where they used it was a field that they used to, um, to to bring the cattle together in the area. It was a well-known spot. It was it was Daniel Morgan, is in charge, of the Marylanders as well as the militia forces in the area. And there's another figure in the Maryland force known as John Eager Howard, who's quite an epic figure that Washington's Immortals follows many of these men in a Band of Brothers-type treatment. It's not a history book. It's in their own words. It's very cinematic, and it's what they saw and did. And Cowpens is an incredible story. They're outnumbered. By, by Tarleton, they're, they're outgunned. I mean, the, this is the British Army, some of the best in the world. And they have to, G- General Morgan has to work with what he has. Most of his force is made up of militia. At Camden, the militia fled and ran. But here, he does something very novel. He sets up a defense in depth, which in the 18th century was quite novel. At the time, he decides to have several lines of defense. First, the militia up front, and then some skirmishers, and then the hardened Marylanders and Delaware Blues behind them, and they're behind a small kind of swale or hill, and they're they're obscured from the the first line. You can't see them, and the British come charging in. Morgan asks the, the militia to do, fire a few shots, and then withdraw, and. That's exactly what they do. They, they, they fire a few shots, they, they slay uh, many of the British in their front lines and they pull back through a gap in the Maryland line and the British feel that this is a complete repeat of Camden and they begin to pour it on. They fix bayonets, they charge bayonets, they go right at it at the, the fleeing Americans and then they run into the Marylanders who are behind the hill who then fire a few shots, they, they stun the British. But um, John Eager Howard's order to wheel right is misinterpreted, and many of the men literally show their backs to the British, and it looks like they're fleeing. They are able to, um, to correct the mistake, and wheel around and fire at the advancing British, and as this is happening, William Washington, who's a nephew of George Washington, has Light Horse, and they come around and envelop and surround most of the British forces at, at, at Cowpens and have a crushing victory. And that is one of the great uh, inflection points of the war in the South. There's Guilford Courthouse and the Marylanders fight throughout the rest of the war. And you know the, the, it all culminates at Yorktown and it's an incredible story where the arch nemesis of Mordecai Gist, General Cornwallis, is fighting Gist. And he's able to, at the end of the battle, after, General, after Cornwallis' forces surrender, he meets Cornwallis face to face. That is part of the story of the Maryland line. In Washington's Immortals, and it all—you know—the line of of leadership um, and of tactics. These men were, you know, forerunners. They were light infantry. It leads up towards, you know, what we see later on in World War One, how Americans innovate and have to do the impossible against a great army. And you know, as I said, all the books I've ever written have found me. And that's certainly the case with this book, which I'm going to talk about for a few minutes, and then I'll take your uh, questions, The Unknowns. This began in 2010 when I was asked by Colonel Buell, who I'd met in Fallujah, to be a guide um, for the battlefields in Normandy, to bring the the 5th Marines to Normandy and the Wounded Warrior Regiment. I went through, we went through St. Mary Glees, Point de Hoc, where I've written a book called Dog Company, the Airborne, but then we went to the epic battle of the Marine Corps for World War I at Belleau Wood. And at Belleau Wood, we're walking across the shell holes of Belleau Wood that are massive. In some cases, the shell holes are the size that they could swallow up a small house. There's mustard gas still inside the trees. Um, the war had you know gone over a hundred years ago but it's still there at Wood. this is the hundredth anniversary of World War One and hardly anybody knows about it but it's a war that has changed all of our lives and continues to change our lives as we were walking around those shell holes uh, many of the men had lost their arms and legs you know it was the realization that you know and the former Ottoman Empire and in this case with me, Fallujah, we almost lost our lives. But so much of what we know today, the world was remade in World War I. And it still so much flows from it. And as we were going through this place, our guide mentioned the first Medal of Honor recipient for the Marine Corps was Ernest August Jansen, who was a gunnery sergeant. And on June 6, 1918, this was the Marine Corps' bloodiest day up until that point in the entire Marine Corps' history, Jansen and George Hamilton, the men of the 49th Company, charged across wheat fields and stopped the German Army from, from taking Paris. But Janssen seized a hill called 142 along with, with um, George Hamilton and his men from the 49th Company, and they set up. The Germans' um, tactics was to, were to, were to immediately counterattack within 20 minutes. The shells started coming in, potato mashers, and they were being counterattacked rapidly. They had a small force that was barely holding on to that hill, and it was Jansen that suddenly saw several Maxim machine guns being set up that would have flanked the entire hill and taken it. But he launched a, a one-man bayonet charge and disrupted those those machine gunners and saved the hill receiving the medal of honor but then our guide said pershing also selected him to be a body bearer from the unknown soldier and it was at that point i wanted to know who were the other men that were the body bearers and they all have epic stories that are that could be movies one man saves a ship from from capsizing by closing a watertight door, even though he's badly burned. Another man fights a U-boat for four hours, and then is captured by the U-boat and and experiences a DOS boat-like experience under the ocean for for weeks. In this room, I I was able to chronicle a cowboy who was with the Wild West Division in the Meuse-Argonne, where they had to strike and seize a town against all odds, only to let it go after the Germans counterattacked. But these are some of the stories that are in the unknowns that are very powerful. And it it tells the story of the AEF's experience through the most decorated enlisted men. It's that World War I generation, that Doughboy generation, that I think is forgotten on this 100th anniversary. I think it's important to honor them, and I also think it's time to find the men of honor, family, and fortune. Thank you very much.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, of course, questions can be either on uh, the Washington's Immortals or on the unknowns, if you'd like. So. Uh, Please, if I can see a raise of hands, anybody who would like to start us out with the first question tonight? Right back here in the corner. Hello,
0: good evening, sir. My name is Paul Meckelson. Thank you for coming out to, uh, to talk about uh, a regiment from my home state, Maryland. Pleasure I, I understand uh, part of the legend you talked about, uh, General Washington turning to an aide saying my God, what brave men I send to die today. Now, I understand that is a legend. Do you know if it
2: is true or not? It's a true story. And the reason why I believe it's a true story is that two days later, it was reported in a newspaper. So I think it has truth and validity uh, to it. What brave men I must lose this day, as he was looking through his spyglass and talking to um, Colonel Smallwood. Yeah. It's, it's an epic, epic American Thermopylae.
3: Let me also join the previous questioner in thanking you for sharing with us such fascinating accounts tonight. Um, I know that after the Revolutionary War some American commanders who came from New England or the middle colonies were uh, given large plantations or land grants in the south in appreciation for their services during the revolution. And I'm wondering if Mordecai Gist was the beneficiary of such an award. Since his descendants were very prominent in South Carolina during the Civil War, Uh, was that bestowed on him as it was on Nathaniel Green?
2: It was, it was a. Uh, he did reside um, after the war in the South. Um, it's not. I, I'm not aware of an actual bestowment, if you will, but he did reside there. And there were many men that received plantations um, out of generosity of the states that they fought for. Um, and these were these were loyalist lands that were seized um, to as the war went on to fund the revolution and then later on they were sometimes uh, used to pay the debts of the revolution or in some cases give to those that fought. Like Green, for instance is quite interesting Green used his own money like Gist to, to fund um, his men and, and supply them and Green went deeply into debt during the war to supply his men and after the war the government didn't pay him back. They got, he got this plantation, but he didn't get his debts relieved. And his widow was fighting Congress for years uh, after the war. And that's a really um, remarkable story of these men sacrificed their lives. Um, They're not only um, free white men, but they're also in some cases free black men. This is an integrated force. There's up to 8% of the Marylanders are actually Free African Americans that fight alongside their white brothers, and the pension files reveal some very interesting details. Many of these men are very—they're poor; they're bankrupt after the war, and they have nothing. And uh, you know, for instance, Robert E. Lee's father goes into bankruptcy and is put into debt- debtor's prison um, after the after the revolution. Uh, money becomes a major major issue. And eventually, um, after many, many years, Congress decides to allow these men to, um, to be able to apply for a pension. And what that is, is you could go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you did and saw during the American Revolution. And this is the heart of many of the, the great stories in Washington's Immortals. It's, these, it's in their own words what they, what they saw and did. Uh, during these battles. Sometimes it's very sparse that they were just there at the battle and others it's like Lawrence Everhart's uh, account. It's very detailed on what he saw with General Washington for instance. Yes sir? After Camden, um, they say that Gates made the fastest horse ride (laughs) in history (laughs) to uh, North Carolina and um, he's basically disgraced after that uh, not not in, not of any kind of note um, he's 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 finished as a uh, as a general officer um, after after Camden and you know at that point it's the Marylanders and you know many of the men General Green who rebuilds the Southern Army and who's arguably I think one of Washington's greatest commanders and fights a brilliant campaign in the South which Ultimately, leads to victory.
4: The uh, Marylanders that were uh, that fought that may have been captured, did they end up on the prison hulks? And uh, if yes. so, what was a uh, rough survival yes. rate?
2: That's a uh, an entire chapter in Washington's Immortals is about these prison ships. And this, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, this these things were floating concentration camps. And here are some of the greatest number of casualties and deaths during the American Revolution people that go on these things, it's an extermination ship. They're starved to death and the ships are disease ridden. Um, It's it's a death camp. And um, very few survive. Some are, if they're lucky enough, they can get paroled if they've got the money. And some even escape. Uh, Jack Stewart, for instance, who I mentioned earlier, you only live once, um, was one of those officers that somehow escaped the, uh, the ship, may have bribed his way off, found a rowboat, and, and uh, was able to make his way towards uh, American lines. And he fought through the entire revolution. He was at Yorktown, and then later um, in some of the battles outside of uh, Charleston. You indicated that when you discovered the plaque at this old VFW in an alleyway in Brooklyn, that's what prompted all of this, and from that came this great book. My question is, Did did anybody do any further recognition to this site or location, or is it still an obscure alleyway in Brooklyn? It's still, uh, it's gotten much more recognition, um, but it's now potentially the subject of a very tragic series of events. The land is so precious and valuable. It's been sold to be a a, a school, and that land is potentially going to be developed. And there's been an archaeological survey, not very, uh, it's not a, um, an exhaustive survey. There's not been um, extensive ground penetrating radar, for instance. There's been some test holes. And it's been almost a year. And we don't know what that survey has revealed yet. But it could be one of the great mysteries of the revolution. Or it could just be, you know, it could be it's a very complicated site because it's there's about eight or eight feet of fill dirt that have covered the the original 1776 uh, layer. So it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think that the there's not a national battlefield for Brooklyn, and there really needs to be something because of this it's so important. At the very least, put some interpretive plaques up, you know. <laughs> Uh, You had mentioned in the beginning that uh, the the Marylanders started with a group of uh, merchants and higher-class people in in Baltimore. Uh, The makeup of the regiment itself or the the group that throughout the whole war, were they like already settled Marylanders or recent I don't know if you want to call them immigrants that came to Colonial America uh, or was it like a cross-section? It's a cross-section and it depends on what year you're talking about. In the early years it was largely um, landowners, um, farmers, uh, skilled tradesmen, and in some cases, men of wealth that formed the, the core of the unit. And then as time goes on, um, it changes. And it, it represents the more of the population. And in the darker years of the war, in 1780, for instance, there's actually a draft. The war is unpopular. And they go out and they literally try to find anybody that's that they can that's a warm body and put them in there. They'll the sheriff, if somebody's homeless, they'll just, you know, basically Shanghai them and put them into the unit. And there's also, um, in some cases, slaves that are that are fighting for their master uh, in their place. Or there's free African Americans as well. I mean, it's a, it's diversified. I found uh, Jewish Marylanders that are in the unit. Um, Spaniards. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a diverse group.
1: All right, we have another one. Uh, let's get over on this side for a minute.
0: As regards uh, World War I. I've been researching both my grandfather's in this library here in the last four months and found out lots of information that no one in my family ever were aware of. I will say, my mother said her father never talked about his experiences, and uh, my dad's surviving sons and daughters said he never talked about it, but they were in the thick of battles and all that. So I go to your question, and not knowing about this book you just wrote about, why isn't there more uh, information pouring out? If the, and I realize it is the 100th anniversary, but when I talk to people about this, there's like, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean they were in France?
2: It's a it's a great tragedy. I mean, I wrote a book on the Korean War, and that's a forgotten war. But World War I perhaps is even more forgotten. But it's a war where America played a, a decisive role, literally changed the war in everything in terms of funding to going from 220,000 individuals to over 4 million men in arms. Um, a massive metamorphosis. This is where America becomes a modern army, a modern Marine Corps, and a modern Navy. Um, it becomes a, it's the seeds of a world power. It's the seeds of an American century. It's women's suffrage. There's so much that flows from World War One, And me, people have complete misconceptions of the fighting itself. It's all, you know, the trenches, and, oh, right. But it's, it's more than that. It's also about the courage and the sacrifice of stories, which are incredible. Many, in many cases, they're, they're buried uh, as deep as the Korean War stories that I had to Earth, and they're interesting. I, I found myself um, so fascinated by, by this topic and, and the men that I explored in this book. I, I, um, it, it became an obsession. I, I really, there's, there's so much here in this book. It's not a... Um, a set of eight stories, for instance. This is a narrative that tells the story of the AEF in a very cinematic uh, approach, and the men, these body bearers who are the most, in most cases, decorated enlisted men of the war. And they fight in all the major campaigns and be- major battles, and they also fight at sea. And that's another forgotten story. The US Navy's role in transporting men overseas, and then even guarding, um, in the one case of James Delaney, guarding a merchant ship with a deck gun in the early years of 1917, where they didn't have convoys. And they were all alone in the, uh, the Bay of Biscay and fought for four hours against a U-boat ace. Who, it, it's, it's an incredible story. The man, the, Victor Diekman, speaks perfect English. And I unearthed U-boat 61's logs in his own words, what what occurred, and put together a very cinematic narrative of how they fought the U-boat, they had a running gun battle for four hours, and they eventually surrender because they run out of ammunition, and then a shell from the U-boat strikes the engine room of the Campana, they surrender, and then it's Das Boat, the movie from World War II, but it's World War One under the waves. And Diekmann actually lets them look through the periscope as they sink, attempt to sink an Allied ship. They're depth-charged. They run into a Q-ship, which is a, an Allied ship to, that's disguised. It's a merchant ship. It's actually a raider that's disguised with artillery to take out the U-boat. Quite an in- incredible story. And then the story of the captivity as well. World War I, I mean, the bloodiest day of the Marine Corps is, is June 6, 1918, Bella Wood. An amazing story, amazing. And we're coming up upon the uh, 100th anniversary of that engagement. And here, is, there's another story about Blancmont Ridge, which nobody's ever heard of. It's a course, one of their forgotten stories, but it's up there with Bella Wood. It was a position that the French couldn't take for four years. It's like the guns in Averon. Hundreds, tens of thousands of French bodies littered the area because it was, was impassable, impossible to take. Marine Corps and the second division, which they were part of, were were able to seize Blancmont Ridge in one day and then go push further into the Hindenburg Line. Amazing
1: stuff. All right, did we have a question back here? All right, we got one back here.
2: Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed Washington's Immortals and one of my favorite characters you didn't talk about was Peter Francisco. Oh God, and yeah. I just wanted to know if there was anything else you could talk about him uh, that's not in your book. Um, for those that have never heard of Peter Francisco, he's known as the giant of the revolution. And this man was like six foot seven, massive, almost seven feet tall. And Francisco was from Portugal and came to the United States as a immigrant, but he was he was an orphan. He was only like 14 or 13 when he came to the United States. He was alone and has to fend for himself. During the war, um, he, uh, he's in a number of engagements, including a place called Mud Island in Pennsylvania, which is right, also known as Fort Mifflin. And um, Fort Mifflin is, is near the Philadelphia airport. But it was the site of one of the longest sieges of the American Revolution francisco endures that he's at the battle of stony point which i cover in washington's immortals in great great detail i i uh, found that to be an incredible um special operations slash intelligence raid for the 18th century and they were able to take a fixed position with with bayonets and um in the cover of darkness jack stewart leads what's known as a forlorn hope which was a uh, suicide squad, essentially, where there were hand-picked men that were up front to pierce the, the defenses. In this case, it was an Atabay, which was an 18th century version of barbed wire, sharpened sticks and logs, and the men up front had only axes, and they had to cut through the Atabay. And Stuart and his men uh, were able to pierce that, those defenses, and they were able to s- surround uh, Stony Point and capture the garrison. Francisco was there. We found his story in a pension file. And at Guilford Courthouse, he also, he had a, a large broadsword that, you know, he used to uh, defend himself and uh, was able to slay several uh, British soldiers. It's quite a remarkable character. This, Washington's Immortals and also the Unknowns is, is filled with just larger-than-life characters. Um, I wrote a, wrote a piece uh, uh, last week Uh, in Breitbart called um, Pershing's One Man Army and that's on Samuel Woodfill, who is one of the body bearers in The Unknowns. Medal of Honor recipient that incredibly is able to take out uh, three machine gun nests single-handedly. He's hit with mustard gas in his eyes. He's not able to put his his mask on. He still continues to fight his 45 jams and he's about to be overtaken by a German machine gunner and the only thing that he can find to defend himself is a pickaxe. And he basically slays the, the machine gunner, fells him like an ox, as he says, and, and kills the machine gunner. But, um, you know, it, that, those are some of the stories that are in this, this book, in The Unknowns, as well as, as Washington's Immortals.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's all the time we have for questions and answers. However, we do have a, a very quick word on our World War I collections from our very own uh, historian emeritus, Senior Historian Emeritus here at the AEC. So if we just have two minutes to talk about our World War I collections.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Carl. Uh, just drawing on my 43 plus years here to perhaps address the questions that were posed and to underscore your great emphasis of the importance of World War. One uh, one might say that the cynicism that set in when the war to end all wars really didn't end all wars, underscored by the Depression, and then the arrival of World War II were literally a vast archive that the doughboys of the 80th Division had gathered to write their history of their war, could not be funded due to the d- Depression, and then the GIs came home from World War II and the 80th division they wanted to write about was the one that had fought under Ike uh, against the Nazis. So until we acquired the archives for the World War I division, uh, the uh, 80th, its history remained unheralded. But through our efforts here, uh, beginning in 1979, led by two great former members of our staff, Jim Cagle and Hermine Scholes, we have acquired some 10,000 accounts by American doughboys, soldiers, sailors, certainly Marines, evidently you use some of them for your book, you're studying them for researching your ancestors. The war is not unheralded, is not forgotten so far as the Army Heritage and Education Center is concerned. And on the other side of these walls are all of those accounts as well as the great collection of books and photographs that everyone from here and from all over the world is welcome to to come and study, and we're so happy that you and you and everyone have already benefited. And I just wanted to underscore that uh, here tonight as a follow-on to your it's presentation. It's a priceless
2: resource that you have gathered here, and I um, I, I spent many afternoons, you know, just going back in time with those Doughboy accounts, especially with the 91st Division, the Wild West Division. Incredible, incredible accounts that are related here. Um, in in this, this excellent archive.:
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to invite uh, Lieutenant Colonel Clutter, our deputy director, here, up for a very quick presentation, and thank you, uh, and then we will uh, be able to get you out of here.:
4: miles enough that I don't need the mic.: uh, So this was the first
1: Oh, love it.
2: the
4: first, <laughs> the first lecture <laughs> that we've had, uh, or since I've been here, on the, the revolution. Uh, which I found very exciting and was looking forward to uh, since I learned that I was coming to this, this evening's uh, event. And what I quickly found was I hadn't really thought about the revolution since really I was in high school. Uh, so I was quickly transported back to my 11th grade year when I had a uh, professor that was teaching me about the American Revolution, and he had such a passion for it. And so as I sat there and I listened to you uh, expound tonight and how you say that the stories find you, which I found very interesting as you said tonight during the dinner and then again tonight during the lecture. It takes a keen eye and an ear for you to hear those stories that are are talking specifically to you and for you then to turn around and then tell the American public so that we can go and share that. As I I shared with you and your fiance in the car, I'm not a historian. But I appreciate history and want to tell that to my children. And as my 17-year-old daughter, is very interested in history and is, is, may pursue that as she moves into college. I just really appreciate you coming in and sharing that with the audience here, with me, and, and so that I can go on Thank and you. tell these stories as uh, we move out of here. Thank so, you so much. That, I'd like to present tonight's uh, poster that we used to advertise your event to you. Maybe this will find a place. Uh, a home I'm, I'm
2: deeply, office. deeply honored. This is, uh, this is beautiful. and I could have a great place on the wall for this. And you know, what I could say is it's, just, it's been an honor and a privilege to, to sort of be able to unearth some of these stories. And what's old is new. What right. we see in the revolution is in Iraq, in Syria. It's in this generation that we have today. And I, and I think uh, it's something that we just need to recognize and honor. We have a lot to be proud of as Americans.
4: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.